0: It was an exciting morning in the Philippian church. Epaphroditus was back, and not only back, but he's got mail. It had been a while since they had last seen him in town. And to be even more honest, they were quite grateful to even see Epaphroditus alive. He was away visiting the Apostle Paul who was in prison in Rome and delivering a financial gift from the church to him. In a time before Venmo and electronic checks or even the postal service, he was the church's messenger boy. However, as luck would have it, the church received somber news concerning Epaphroditus' well-being. He had become ill while running the church's errand, and his sickness took a turn for the worst, so much so that he was knocking on death's door. Anxiety was through the roof for the Philippian church. Likely many prayer meetings were held, petitioning God to heal him, and the Apostle Paul says that God had mercy on him. Epaphroditus finally recovered, and now he is being sent back to Philippi with a thank-you letter from Paul addressed to the Philippians for their generosity. But Paul could not pass up the opportunity to preach one more time, albeit through a letter. Epaphroditus was heading home already. Why not kill two birds with one stone? There was likely much enthusiasm and anticipation surrounding this letter from Paul. After all, he was the one who essentially founded their church. He had a special place in their hearts and their history. Maybe the Philippians could remember their first impressions of Paul, this foreign Jewish man, along with his companions Silas, Luke, and Timothy, when they waltzed into Philippi one day they had come they had come here because they had had a vision of a macedonian man in a dream telling them to come here maybe some of them were there when paul baptized their church matriarch lydia and her family lydia was the local purple cloth seller and she became the first convert in philippi after hearing what paul had to say they're likely meeting in lydia's house this morning for church Maybe they were there in the marketplace when Paul cast out an evil spirit from a local slave girl. Everyone in town knew of the poor girl's affliction, and even everyone knew her owners were exploiting her suffering for, for personal financial gain. But twas life in Philippi they, surpo- they surmosed. However, this demon-possessed girl was harassing Paul and his friends that afternoon, so much so that Scripture says Paul, very much annoyed, turned and spoke to the evil spirit, commanding it to come out in the name of some guy called Jesus Christ. And incredibly, it did. Instantly, everyone was stunned. They had never seen anything like this. Maybe they remember Paul and Silas being imprisoned for their supposed disturbance of the peace. After being attacked by the angry crowds and stripped of their clothes and beaten with rods, they were thrown into the local prison. Maybe they recall that night at around midnight, an earthquake struck Philippi. Their homes reverberated and rumbled and shook because of the seismic tremor that reverberated throughout the entire town with its epicenter. They later found out being that local jail. Maybe the jailer who was on duty that night, who's still a regular member at their church, still talks about that night. That night that Paul and Silas refused to leave after being set free. The night that they they saved his life in more ways than one. The night that he and his family were baptized after hearing about salvation again through this man called Jesus Christ. That night changed that prison guard's life forever and he's probably still testifying about it. This same Paul is writing them all from another personal letter, from another jail cell hundreds of miles away. He's in prison awaiting trial before Caesar, but that hasn't hindered him from thinking about the Philippians. They have a special place in his heart, as he says throughout the letter that they are a source of joy for him. They are regularly in his prayers, routinely on his mind, high praise coming from someone of Paul's caliber. Whatever was planned for the weekly gathering for the Lord's Day in Philippi is set aside for Paul's postage. It will be read aloud in its entirety end to end. And I've always wondered, What it would have been like to be in Philippi that day, hearing what we know as the book of Philippians being read aloud for the first time. I wonder if everyone was on the edges of their seats to hear what the apostle had to say. Remember, this is a time before the internet. No social media, phone calls, video messages, nothing like we have today. They only heard from Paul in irregular spurts. Perhaps everyone in the Philippian church is hanging on to every word from Pastor Paul. But I also wonder if they knew that they were receiving what we know now as sacred scripture, the word of God. From the Holy Spirit himself, through the words of the apostle to the ears of the Philippians, imagine hearing this for the first time. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at every name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Maybe the Philippians knew to expect that this was not simply going to be a thank you letter. (laughs) Paul's a bit of a talker. And when he gets to talking, he starts to inadvertently start spouting theology like a lot of pastors annoyingly do. He's always preaching, typical of those with the preaching bug. Paul's got more on his mind than just simply saying thank you to the church at Philippi. And Paul's not hesitant to go deep with the Philippian Christians either with what he wants to say. Many believe Paul is referencing here what the Philippians would likely recognize as a Christ hymn, a hymn or a statement about the incarnation and death and exaltation of Christ. The origins of this hymn are unknown. The hymn's usage in the early church has since been lost to time, but based on its composition and placement in the letter, it leads many to believe that Paul is quoting something that is in circulation among the early church. Hymns like this were useful as teaching tools to rehearse important aspects of theology. They were recited corporately in the church service like creeds or statements of faith or confessions of faith are still recited today. Perhaps you participated in something like that at some point. Likely the Philippians are familiar with this particular hymn, so Paul does not feel the need to qualify or explain it. Now, many theologians today that are much smarter than me might want to camp right here. They want to dissect this first century hymn, picking it apart, analyzing each phrase, and discerning the deeper meaning behind each of them. Dissertations have been written about it. Pages on pages and commentaries have been written about this hymn. And while these pursuits have their time and place, in my humble opinion... Many get lost in the scholastic weeds while missing the larger purpose why Paul would even mention this hymn in the first place. It's not by accident or coincidence that Paul brings this hymn to the minds of the Philippians. I believe Paul is wanting to talk to those of us, whether you're a Philippian or a Christian today, who are deeply familiar with this story, this story of the incarnation and the crucifixion of Christ. He wants to remind us of the attitude that was within the person of Christ that motivated or propelled the Son of God to do what he did as it has bearing on how Christians are to live in the light of the cross. In a nutshell, the hymn eloquently walks through or rehearses what Jesus did. Christ, who already existed before the creation of humanity, was a person of the Godhead who willingly humbled himself or emptied himself of that divine status for the sake of humankind. He counted the interests of others more important or more significant than his own. And another word that we could use to reflect this decision is love. Out of love, the Son of God willingly chose to take on our human nature to save humanity from their sins, even though we did not earn or deserve it. Love is the only explanation for this willingness by Jesus. The Son of God did not think it beneath him to do this. To become a servant for sinful, undeserving mortals is actually intrinsically who God is. For you see, Jesus did not abandon or cease being God. Rather, by taking on human form, Jesus demonstrated what it truly means to be God. To be God is to be love. For God is love. In fact, he was willing to go as far as it took, namely drinking a cup that resulted in death. And not just any human death, even death on a cross. Love demanded a sacrifice, and Christ was willing to do so. So when we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, what we see is what it means to be God. As we look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought that we should think is that this is the true meaning of who is God. He is the God of self-giving love. For God so loved the world. Love so amazing, so divine. What lunderous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? This is the gospel. This is the good news. God has not forgotten about us. God still loves us. God loves us so much that he found a way to save us. And this love, at least in the eyes of the Apostle Paul, is not motivated by reward, gain, promotion, or self-interest. No one would be crazy enough to do what he did, expecting nothing in return. No one except Jesus. Christ emptied himself, served and died without a promise of reward. Christ acted on our behalf without a view of gain. Christ surrendered his life not for a trophy or a crown. The only crown he was concerned with wearing was made of thorns. He did not live a full human life and die an excruciating human death with an eye on the prize, so to speak, whether it was here on earth or in glory. While we do have him wrestling with his own interests in the garden, ultimately Christ put the interests of his heavenly father and even the interests of humanity above his own. And that is precisely why God the father exalted Christ. Christ did not exalt himself, someone else did. It is because of his self-giving love that he has been exalted by God the father. He deserved and earned exaltation though that was never in his mind because he sacrificed himself in the name of unconditional love for the sake of transgressors. He has been returned to his status of glory and bliss though now with nail holes in his hands and one day one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All will join in saying, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Christ's entire life, from his birth to Good Friday, is the template of, For all of Christian living, according to Paul, Jesus modeled and exemplified how citizens of his kingdom are to behave and act toward one another. Paul earlier told the Philippians, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I'm convinced this is what Jesus meant when he told his disciples to take up their own crosses just like him. Following him demands denying oneself, taking up one's own cross, and following in his footsteps. Whenever Christians engage and live life with one another, it is to be marked by the same kind of self-giving love that drove the Son of God to leave glory. Be born in the likeness of humanity, serve instead of be served, and die a criminal's death. If we're truly to be Christians, which literally means little Christs, then we must model that which what our Lord demonstrated to us. If we truly want to be godly people, be imitators of Christ, to be little Christs, then we must, above all else, love like he loved. There is no alternative. 1 John chapter 4 says it this way. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love not that he loved not that we loved god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins beloved if god so loved us we ought to love one another rehearsing the story of christ ought to always prompt us to examine ourselves to check our hearts to see if we are living worthy of the gospel of christ Every time we gaze upon that old rugged cross, it should remind us of the love God showed us, but also stir us to love like he loved. We're not simply to admire what Christ did on the cross from afar and change nothing about our lives, nor are we simply to take what Christ did on the cross as some sort of fire insurance. Dallas Willard rightfully calls these kinds of people vampire Christians. They say to Jesus, I'd like a little bit of your blood, please, but I don't care to be your student or have your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I go about my life, and I'll see you in heaven. May that never be said of us. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Are we taking up our cross like Jesus did? Are we loving others like Jesus loved? Are we living up to our namesake? Are we sacrificing our interests for the interests of others? If someone were to describe us, to describe our church, would love be at the top of that list? Or would a different characteristic be? So like the Philippians, how do we have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, here at Gibbon Baptist Church? I think it starts with a proper understanding of what love is. My theology professor in college, by the name of, by the name of Dr. Chris Bounds, had this definition for love that I believe is both biblically and theologically sound that I want to pass on to you. He said love is composed of two parts. First, there is a desire or a want. Love is the desire for union or relationship or fellowship or wantness with someone or something. But second, love is the alignment of our will with that desire or want. Love is making decisions and choices that actually bring about union with that someone or something that we desire to be in union with. Allow me to illustrate for you. I love barbecue. Having grown up in Kansas City, Missouri, it should come as no surprise that my favorite food group is barbecue. I am not a vegetarian. I am a carnivore. Give me some beef, pork, or chicken. It doesn't matter. Give me some ribs or some brisket. My mouth is already watering just thinking about it. And yes, I know lunch is coming. I'm almost done. And while I may love barbecue and desire to be united with a plate of barbecue, it is not true love until I make decisions and choices that actually unite me with some barbecue. Whether it's ordering it at a restaurant, cooking some at home, or making a pilgrimage to some of the best barbecue joints only found in Kansas City. It is not love until my will is in alignment with my desire to be one with some barbecue. I love the Kansas City Chiefs. And my love for the Chiefs has not wavered since only one terrible second half and one certain pivotal game. In fact, I would say that my love has been tested. But my love for Kansas City Chiefs is not true love unless I make decisions and choices that make my desire to be one with that football team a reality. Until I align my will with my desire, it is not true love. And true love does not settle for half-hearted union or oneness, only complete oneness. Until I make decisions and choices like maybe one day purchasing tickets, if I could afford it, to go to Arrowhead Stadium and watch a game. Or more than likely, I will tune in every Sunday to watch the game. Or if I can't watch the game, I will secretly be looking at my phone at the score. I may purchase clothing items or other merchandise to show my love for that team. My desire and will are in alignment, meaning that is true love. I love my parents and brother. I desire to be in relationship and union with my parents and brother. To the best that I can be, I want to be in relationship with all three of them. However, my love for my parents and brother is not true love until I act on that desire by making decisions and choices that actualize my desire for union with them. Actions like FaceTiming my parents most weeks. Traveling to visit them on occasion, Taking, talking to my brother on the phone or when we play video games, buying them gifts on occasion. You get the idea. My love for my parents and brother is not true love until my desires and my will are in complete unison with the goal of oneness. And again, true love does not settle for half-hearted union or oneness. Only complete union with that someone or something is true love. This understanding of love applies to God as well. And we see it exemplified in perfection in the life of Christ, culminating on the cross. You have heard it said, For God so loved the world. God loves humanity. God wants to be in relationship with humanity, but sin gets into the way of that. Sin disrupted and ruptured our relationship with God, but that did not stop God from aligning his will with his desire for union with humanity. Sin did not win. God God's love when, so keep reading the passage, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God took action to overcome sin by sending his son. The Son of God did not simply desire or want relationship with us. The Son of God made a choice. He made a decision, multiple decisions, in fact, a series of decisions. He chose to leave glory, to empty himself, to be born in the form of a servant. He chose to be born in the likeness of humankind. He made decisions that were obedient with the mission for which he was sent. And ultimately, he chose to suffer and die, even dying on a cross. Jesus aligned his desires and will for union with humanity. He demonstrated what true love is, and now he beckons us all to do the same, to imitate his way of loving. While we may desire union with one another, are we making decisions and choices that result in what we desire? it's the thought that counts is not good enough for true love while we may agree with treating others like we want to be treated are we making choices that actually actualize what we are saying if we say that we love this church family here at gibbon baptist church are we making decisions and choices that make that desire a reality Are we making decisions and choices that bring a smile to our Lord's face? To have the mind of Christ Jesus means we need to not simply desire union with others. It's not good enough to agree with that sentiment, but we actually have to make decisions and choices, often sacrificial and selfless in nature, to make our wants a reality. And we have to be active. We have to get moving. We have to do things in the name of love. Jesus is willing to do that. How about us? But the reverse is also a possibility. We may make decisions and choices, however, be void of any desire for union. This is only the appearance or the facade of love. This is why Paul cautions the Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. If we make decisions and choices for our personal gain or self-interests alone, it is not love, but instead selfishness, which is not what Christ did. Paul speaks to the Corinthians, and he says it this way, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all the faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. We may make decisions and choices in the name of love, but really we are only thinking about our own interests and not the interests of others. We may even do spiritual or churchy things, however deep inside our desires are not for oneness with others. Our desires are for how we alone can benefit, not how others can benefit. Our actions may have ulterior motives. A different desire other than union and oneness with someone, it may be personal gain. It may be glory. It may be reward, but this is not love. This is a distorted love. This is not the way of the cross, and this ought not to be the way of Christians. It should be noted that Paul is not saying all this to the Philippians because he believes they are failing in this capacity. There doesn't appear to be a problem of disunity or conflict in their congregation, though that is debated among modern scholars. In fact, the reputation in his eyes is quite good. He's proud of them and the testimony they have among other churches. This is not a Corinth situation. Paul is not writing a heated letter pulling no punches because he's disappointed that they've tolerated a man sleeping with his father's wife. This is not a Galatia issue. Paul's not writing the church rebuking them and scolding the church for easily abandoning the true gospel in favor of a false one. But even the healthiest of churches need warranted reminders and checkups every once in a while. Are we loving like Jesus loved? Paul is seeking to encourage them, to spur them on, seeking to better them, to remind them that love should be a top priority. A love marked by servitude with the interests of others in our minds, not just our own. And as we're nearing this time in the life of the church where we rehearse the story of our Lord, which started back on Christmas Eve that commemorated his birth, but in the coming weeks when we re-enter Jerusalem once again and remember Palm Sunday and retell the passion on Good Friday and we revisit that empty tomb on Easter, what a perfect time to reevaluate our hearts to see if we are loving the way Christ demonstrated to us. when we think of the cross, Christ's atoning work, consider how you can model that love in your own hearts and in your own lives. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. The words of our Lord.